on the lowdown, a dancing doom podcast. Chacha can this show gets us the lowdown on Frisian and dancing doom. Over to you, Hannah and Moella. Thanks, Jody. Hello and welcome to The Lowdown. I'm your host, Marla Folden, and I'm an SLP here at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. I'm joined by my co-host, Hina Mahmood, who's OT at the DSRF. Hi, Hina. Hi, Marla. How are you? Ooh, I'm doing well. Very caffeinated at this point. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it's an afternoon It's an afternoon post-lunch recording, so caffeine right. is required for sure. I'm yeah. ready. Um, <laughs> before we continue on with our episode, we would love for you to hit the subscribe button and leave a review of our podcast on your chosen platform. Remember to check our episode pages for additional resources related to each topic, and you can follow us pretty much everywhere. We've got a website, and we're on Instagram and Twitter as well by following at DSRF Canada. On today's episode, we're going to explore a topic that I feel like probably doesn't get as much attention as it should when we're considering the Down syndrome population, and that's vision. Uh, So how we see can impact almost everything that we do all day long um, from our day-to-day routines. And if there's any challenges with vision, it makes everything difficult. And Down syndrome does have effects on the developing eye, which can impact the proper development of vision. Eye disease is reported in over half of individuals with Down syndrome, ranging from less severe to more threatening, vision-threatening diagnoses. And we will get right into it in this episode. Yeah, so I'm really excited to welcome our guest today. So born in Nairobi, Kenya, um, and having grown uh, up outside London, UK in Slough, uh, Dr. Nichol had gained his medical degree from King's College Hospital um, at the London University, trained in ophthalmology at the Oxford Eye Hospital Rotation, fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology and strabismus at Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Uh, Appointed to... uh, Uh, appointed as a consultant at the Great Ormond Hospital for Children in London. Uh, And he then was recruited to Pittsburgh in 2011 and is now the Division Chief of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus um, at the UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, Medical Director of Digital Health. Welcome, Dr. Nischel, to The Lowdown. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. Yeah, our pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're very excited. Um, this is a topic that I, I've always had a bit of interest in because I think it's just something that kind of always gets pushed aside from some of the other medical challenges that our individuals with Down syndrome experience. So I feel like it's a really important thing for our listeners to learn about. But before we dive into all that, we were wondering if you could indulge us in answering some of our secret questions. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay, so I'll start off. Um, if you were to compete in either the Winter or Summer Olympics, what sport would you use, choose to It would be in? the bob, bobsled in the Winter oh. Olympics because I love the movie Cool Runnings. Yeah. And if they can do it, I can do it. Yes. And I just want to yeah. be able to say, you know, uh, as, as I roll over on my bobsled, Sanka, you dead? Naman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I saw I that. that Jamaica has a team for bobsled this year yeah. for the Olympics. I got very excited. So very excited. Yeah. yeah. I love that you have thought about this question before and you had an answer right away. I love it. Well, no, it's, I, I, I didn't. I just, I just know that that's what I want to do. It's my secret very uh, cool. desire. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. Question number two. What is your favorite breakfast food? Oh, that's easy. I make a, a smoothie every day myself. Okay. And um, it has kale and spinach. Mm. It has carrots, half a lemon, 
It has blackberries, some water, and some ginger in it, fresh ginger. Oh, yes. You had oh, that is, that is, I absolutely, and then sometimes if I'm feeling de- decadent, I'll stick a banana in as well. <laughs> I like how your definition of decadency is banana. I love it. I'd be oh, like, no, it's much more than that, but I'm like, chocolate powder. <laughs> that is, so that's my daily healthy breakfast. But if I, like, I was with my daughter in DC, she works there, and she took me to a place which was amazing, and I had eggs benedict with salmon. And yes. that was wonderful. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, now you're talking my language. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, we wrote these questions when we thought the pandemic was going to be done, so I'm laughing at this. Um, <laughs> as we get through this wave of the pandemic, where would you like to go on vacation if it were an option? Well, it's funny you should say that. In the last six months, I have been to about six countries outside the oh. USA. So I have traveled. I mean, my nose doesn't know what's happening to it because it gets uh, swabbed so often. Um So uh, where would I like to go on vacation? Um, Mm -hmm. I would like to go to the Isle of Islay in Scotland because I like single malt whiskies. And I'd like to go spend four days around the distilleries pairing single malts with chocolate because that's what they do. They they give you you, uh, malt tastings with with, uh, paired chocolate. That does sound decadent. I mean, yeah. Yes, and quite a you're, quite a trip. You're impressed at how quickly I'm giving you the answers, aren't you? <laughs> I can tell I you. Know, we didn't even. I yeah, exactly. We didn't even send questions. you these questions. <laughs> <laughs> Love it though. Mm-hmm. Um, question number four: If you could instantly be an expert in something you don't know anything about, what would you choose as a new topic of expertise? Artificial intelligence. I wish I could program for artificial intelligence, because I think mm. that doctors of the future will need to be coders as well. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I bet you're not <laughs> wrong. I was just thinking of all of the surgery just, robots yeah. that I know of, and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. <laughs> okay. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going towards more technology reliance. So why, instead of fighting it, you know, maybe just no. join you good at it. So I think the yeah. thing is... Um, why I say doctors of the future, the best doctors are going to be coders, is that they will come across a problem. And if they can code uh, a computer program to evaluate the data faster than the human brain can, which you know is, is being done now, they'll be able to deliver uh, innovation much, much quicker faster than we're doing at the moment because at the moment if i have an idea i have to go and find a student i have to go and try and work with a postdoc you know and they don't have the money i have to find research funding whereas if i could code and i understood mm. um I, I don't i think it's called python i don't know python, python. pythagoras what's it python. called python it's called python, python. Mm-hmm. if i could use that and i knew how to do it I, i'm sure i could get to the answers quicker so anyway that's, no that's very interesting I mean, there you go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's it's a very interesting way way to look at it for sure. Um, okay, so our last question is: You're, I'm sure, very very busy in your day to day routine. What do you do to de stress? So, um, apart from exercise, which I don't do every day, I should do every day, but I don't do every day. Apart from exercise, which really helps me de stress, I I enjoy really watching. Uh, foreign movies 
Mm. I love foreign movies because when you watch a foreign movie, you, you, there's a, you're stimulating certain parts of your parietal lobes that don't get stimulated normally. And I really, I enjoy that. And I love listening to foreign music. I love listening to foreign music. So that's what I do. Any region yeah. in particular? Uh, so foreign music, African. I love West African music, Mali, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah. There's a guy called Salif Kaita who actually uh, is, you know, he was born an albino. And in that culture, uh, albinos are considered um, uh, not nice individuals. So he was thrown out by his family, picked up by troubadours, and has become mm. one of the highest selling artists in the world. If you ever get a chance to listen to his music, Salif Kaita, K-E-I-T-A, it is phenomenal. His, his, his voice is phenomenal. Ooh, wonderful. I yeah. I lived in Ghana for a, a brief moment and the music was everywhere. It's yeah. very it's integrated into every part of life and it is on high volume. So. Yeah. Years, <laughs> years, years ago I went to Dhaka and uh, that was I at every street corner you had music and they were creating music from instruments that weren't really even instruments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So creative. Yeah. yeah, it's spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for kind of playing along with us on that. I learned a lot and actually you've kind of made me want to now, you know, research the Python, AI and surgery and <laughs> some amazing West African music. So that's great. Um, so let's kind of dive into our episode. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in working with individuals who have Down syndrome? Yeah, so... Uh... You know, as a as a pediatric ophthalmologist, I've been working with uh, patients who have Down syndrome for or since 1992. Um, more recently, I've been seeing more and more uh, adolescents and adults being referred to me from around the country because of a particular condition called keratoconus, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about, uh, because there is this treatment called collagen crosslinking which is available, but many, many patients with Down syndrome don't have the level of cooperation needed to have that treatment done uh, in the standard way, which is awake under local anesthetic, lying on your back for one hour. So we at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh give them a general anesthetic, and no matter what their weight, no matter what their age, you know, I'm very lucky that the hospital supports this, uh, mm -hmm. for patients with Down syndrome who have special needs. Um, yeah. And so that my involvement with them has become greater in the, in, the, in the last few years. Prior to that, it was basically screening for ocular problems, which we know occur at a greater rate than the normal population. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole range of them, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get cover. Into. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's so great that you're experience is mainly as a pediatric ophthalmologist, but because you are working a little bit more with adults, it's nice to kind of have that bookend of experience where you can kind of see how their vision is developing over the lifespan. So I think that yeah. will just make our discussion that much more richer. Um, for our listeners, can you please explain the difference between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist? Because I know that those terms get sure. switched up quite a bit. So look, I think the first thing to say is ophthalmologists and optometrists have the same goal, and that is to 
maximize the potential of the vision of the patients that they're seeing. And the, the, the same goal uh, is to treat any conditions that might prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, optometrists um, uh, have their own course of optometry and their own American Academy of Optometry in the USA. Uh, ophthalmologists have to do a medical degree or a degree of osteopathy before they then do residency for three years in ophthalmology. And then to be a pediatric ophthalmologist, you have to do another year, at least one year of clinical fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology. So the difference also is that ophthalmologists can operate surgically. Um, Optometrists by and large can't. Um, But the evaluation and treatment is very similar between the two. Uh, but what what the treatments uh, an ophthalmologist can do is has a greater range because it includes surgery. Yeah, yeah, very well put. And, and the reason why I ask that is because you know in the Down syndrome healthcare guidelines, they do mention that regular checkups with an ophthalmologist, and they say that specifically is very important. So I know that in my day to day interactions with families, a lot of parents will say, "Oh yeah, we've seen." We've seen an optometrist, but just kind of getting them to understand that sometimes optometrists might be looking for different things than an ophthalmologist would be, even though their end goal is still the same, is to help develop vision. So to give you, I mean, I I understand what you're saying, and I I know what the guidelines say. I'll go back to the the, the fact that both optometrists and ophthalmologists have the same goal. And (laughs) and I think that the best way to make sure that uh, both groups Uh, are um, assessing children with Down syndrome the best is to have communication. So in Western Pennsylvania, in Allegheny County, where we are based, we've developed a pediatric eye network, um, which is uh, a a number of local optometrists in the community who meet with us virtually on a regular basis and we develop common protocols. Um, and, and we haven't covered Down syndrome, but that, that to me is an excellent one to do next so that we're all doing the same thing and checking the same thing when we see them. The reason why I say that is that what we have to make sure that the best form of medicine is medicine that's accessible. And if parents are living somewhere where it takes them three hours to get to an ophthalmologist, but half an hour to get to an optometrist. I would like that accessibility to be available to the parents. I wouldn't like to say to them, well, you can't see an optometrist, you have to see an ophthalmologist. And they find they can't get there, you know? So yes. um, that's my uh, attitude to that issue. Yeah. Oh, it makes a, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. And it, here in Canada, I mean, we have a space issue, right? that specialist might be a flight away in a lot of cases. Um, so it would be ideal if everyone were doing the same protocol and following the same guidelines. And we would love to, I think, develop some more of those patterns of referral. In yeah. And I think so that, you know, your network. Yeah. I, I, it's not difficult. I don't think it is. Uh, we managed to do it here in uh, the USA, so, certainly in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So, why is it important to, you know, as per the healthcare guidelines, why is it important to do these checkups during the early years of development? 
I'm, I'm sure that's that's a very very important thing, and I would have mentioned it had you not asked me. <laughs> when a baby is born, regardless of what their um, status is systemically, between the ages of zero and eight years, they learn to see. So they they can't see when the baby's born. It can't see. Everything's just a blur. And the brain then develops the ability to process images and see. If you have something, and the brain has an innate sense of what is normal. And so if you have something that disrupts that, and the commonest things are a high refractive error, in other words, the need for glasses, or um, nystagmus, that's when the eyes are not still, or strabismus, that's when one eye is turning in. Um, or turning out, mm-hmm. the brain stops taking images normally and it starts to lay down that abnormal image on into the seeing part of the brain called the occipital cortex. Mm-hmm. And if that happens and it's not corrected, by the time you're eight years, this neural plasticity that exists disappears and now what you have is you have for the rest of your life you can do any fancy operations any fancy contact lenses but if the brain has a limited ability to process images because of disruption in the early years then you're done Mm -hmm. i got nauseous just thinking about it yeah Mm. (laughs) so so that's that that loss of vision because of an abnormal visual experience is called amblyopia. Now, if you have one eye that's turning in, the, the brain realizes it's seeing two images because one eye is pointing one way and the other one the other way, or you know, in another direction. And so the brain stops taking images from the eye that it innately knows. It says, well, I'm looking at Marla's face and I can see Hina's face, but I'm going to ignore the Hina's face because I want to look at Marla's face mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. other way around. So mm-hmm. that is another reason for the development of amblyopia. Now, in children with Down syndrome, there's an added complication. Mm. That added complication, actually, it was Margaret Woodhouse who brought this out. Margaret Woodhouse is an optometrist in Wales. I think she's in Cardiff University. She may may have retired now, I'm not sure. That woman is amazing, single-handedly changed how we looked at children with Down syndrome because she showed that... uh, a significant proportion of children, not a majority necessarily, but a significant proportion of children with Down syndrome are not able to focus properly for near. Now, you know that as you accumulate birthdays, and I've accumulated enough birthdays, I'm now wearing bifocals because I can't focus for near. Mm-hmm. And so these children uh, have that lack of ability to focus. And if you think about it, in the first four to five years of life, your world really is about an arm length away. And if you can't focus, you can't see. So you see blurred. And uh, the problem is, is that this affects their, their reading. It affects their fine motor skills. Um, because if you can't see to pour water from one glass to another because it's, it's blurry, you're going to miss the glass, right? Yeah. It also causes the eyes to turn in because if you overfocus, your eyes will turn in. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. They try to squeeze the focusing out. And as a consequence, there's a turning in of the eye. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the plasticity 
Yeah. So we know that our, our students with Down syndrome, children with Down syndrome, they all experience a developmental delay. So they're not meeting the milestones at the same rate as other children would necessarily. But is the plasticity, plasticity still set by age eight? So no sure. matter where you are development, developmentally by no, age eight at the, the moment? The answer to that question is nobody knows. Nah. Nobody knows. Uh, what I will say to you, while we while we're on this subject of plasticity, that uh, again, Margaret Woodhouse recently did a paper where they looked they they used a um, they used a questionnaire to assess whether a child may have cortical visual impairment, and there were there were only Down syndromes now Down syndrome patients. Cortical visual impairment is interesting. It doesn't mean that the visual cortex necessarily is affected, but what it means is that the processing of images. So you get an image in the visual cortex at the back of your head. The parietal cortex now processes that and then tells the brain what's going on. The brain brain makes sense of it and acts accordingly. But one of the things about CVI is, and and this really didn't occur to me until I read this paper, is some Down syndrome patients that I see get very agitated the more people there are in the room when, when they're being examined. And they don't like crowding. Crowded pictures or crowded um, uh, um, scenarios mm-hmm. agitate them. They can't think straight. You know, they might be calm normally, and now they become agitated. So this is a sign of the inability to process all those multiple sensory visual inputs and make mm-hmm. sense of them. So there's in, in the paper she wrote, she found that up to 38% of patients with Down syndrome had some evidence of cortical visual impairment. And I don't think that that's generally acknowledged. Yep. No. So happy you said that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yes. I think it's often written off as overwhelm. Oh, they're overwhelmed. Yeah. But not yeah. not why or they're not they overwhelmed. Yeah. Or they're 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 being stubborn. They're not listening. They don't want to look. They don't want to do this. And I'm so happy you brought up the the cortical visual impairment because in my line of work as well, I try to get families to understand the difference between, you know, visual issues like a refractive error or a strabismus, like an anatomical issue or physiological issue versus the processing of the information in the brain. Because there is lots of research out there on how it's so difficult for our individuals with Down syndrome to, you know, in global organization, visual discrimination, all those things that you mentioned are a separate issue as well that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And, And I mean, some people say that we shouldn't use the term cortical visual impairment, we should use the word cerebral visual impairment to, to, to uh, acknowledge or convey that it is a, it's a global processing issue, right? And we know, we know that if you look at the, the volume of the brain in, in patients with Down syndrome, it's somewhat reduced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we know that there is, there is an anatomical substrate to suggest that there may not be the normal setup of processing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this kind of leads us into our next question. So we talked, we're kind of touching on it, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the signs and symptoms that might indicate that there is an issue with vision for individuals with Down syndrome. Yeah. So I think before, look, to do that effectively, it's probably worth just running through from uh, from the front of the eye to the back of the eye as to the problems that can occur and then how a child may present with those, right? Sure. So um, 
and I'll talk about visually insignificant changes as well as, as well as visually significant. So if you start at the front of the eye, if you've got your eyes closed, then you see the lids, right? And in the lids, the in in children with Down syndrome, that there's a higher proportion who have a blocked nasolacrimal duct, and that presents with watering eyes. Now sometimes mm -hmm. it's partial, and the watering eye only occurs when they go out in the cold. Mm -hmm. But a watering eye and over, you know, overflowing of the tears down the cheeks uh, is a sign that they could have a nasolacrimal duct obstruction. Now, the reason why it's important to get that fixed is that if that gets infected, you've got nowhere for the bugs to drain, and then they just grow in the sac of the of the tear sac, um, and that can cause a nasty infection. Mm -hmm. um, the lids. The older the child gets, and they don't have to be that old. I, I, I saw a seven-year-old, no, six-year-old girl with Down syndrome who had terrible, terrible blepharitis. Blepharitis means inflammation of the lid margins. But in particular, these children get meibomian gland dysfunction. So let me explain what that is. Please do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the lid margins, there, there are lashes. Mm -hmm. And behind the lashes is a row of glands that produce oil. The oil goes on top of the tear film to stop it evaporating too quickly. If those glands get blocked, they're, they get, they're blocked with fatty-rich material. Mm -hmm. The normal bacteria that live on our skin overgrow. They mm. incite an immune reaction from the body. And so the lids get red, they get puffy and they can get infected. Mm -hmm. But they can also just be chronically irritated, and then you get dry eyes. So what happens, these children are eye rubbers. They rub their eyes. They blink a lot. I mean, it's like when I see a child with Down syndrome, and I often see this on the television, you know, if they're, being, if they're with their parents, and, they're, and I'm, I know you can't see this, but they're doing this as they're talking. Mm -hmm. I, I want yeah. to sort of send a message and say, will you please get them to an eye care professional to see if they've got dry eyes secondary to my bone gland dysfunction. Now, the older they get, the problem is, is they can get ulcers on the cornea. They can also get them when they're younger, but the older they get, that the immune response can result in an ulcer of the cornea. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a child now who's blinking a lot, that's one thing, is an eye rubber. That's something that means mm -hmm. that you need to be, that they need to be looked at. And um, parents might also notice a buildup of like the fatty, substance within, yeah, then, in the eyelashes right i see yeah, the eyelashes yeah that's sort of a that sort of a seborrheic yes that they can and sometimes one of the glands will get so blocked that they'll get a little lump called a chalazion in the lid and that's another sign that they've got my bowman gland disease and they need treatment for that you know they need drops and they need warm compresses um, mm. um going back then on the iris which is the colored part of the eye uh, Many children with Down syndrome get something called brush field spots. These are just um, pigmentation. It's a light pigmentation. It's not visually significant. And you can see it in up to 11 to 12% of patients who don't have Down syndrome. So it's mm -hmm. not, not uh, significant. Um, one thing that is significant is uh, the cornea. If you're an eye rubber, and we don't really know the etiology, what we know is that the prevalence of keratoconus, that's when the cornea, instead of being like um, a sphere, becomes like a cone. The problem is, as it becomes more acutely conic, 
um, that you can get a rupture and you get scarring and that mm. affects your visions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you can't see. So, so do you suspect that that is related to interference with the eye, chronic eye, eye rubbing? rubbing yeah, so, so it's well established that chronic eye rubbing can cause keratoconus. People, you know, it's difficult to know for sure, right? But the the prevalence of um, keratoconus in the general population is 0.2 to 0.4%. But in um, uh, Down syndrome, there's a really good paper from somewhere in, I think it's Denmark, or it may have been Sweden. They found it was 5.5%. So that's a significant increase mm-hmm. compared to the normal population. Uh, so... How would you know? Look, if they, you'd know if they develop what we call high drops. That's when they get the rupture because it's incredibly painful. The child's got their eyes shut, or the teenager, or even the adult, because of the pain. And of course, that that needs an emergency room visit. Um, when you look at the lens, children with Down syndrome or adults with Down syndrome often have what we call blue dot cataracts. They're not visually significant but they can become significant if they coalesce and they become a, a, a proper cataract. And how would you know you'd see a change in behavior of, of the child? In the adult, they'll tell you that they can't see or they're not seeing things or they're missing things. But in the child, there's a change in behavior because they can't see. And so, the, again, that needs uh, fairly urgent attention. Is that something that develops as the child grows or is that? Yes. So so you can get a child with Down syndrome, have cataracts at birth, which is normally picked up on screening, but usually it develops as they grow older. Um, So cornea, right. So the other one that uh, is important is the discs, the optic discs. We don't think they're visually significant, but they have a large number of optic disc anomalies. And those optic disc anomalies are, you know, increased number of disc vessels crossings, uh, slightly smaller discs. Um, those are the main things. But again, not necessarily a patient parent wouldn't pick anything up. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be that way. Mm-hmm. But then you 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 look at and we've talked about cortical visual impairment. You know, we've talked about the things like processing. You know, overcrowding. Um, uh, you know, being told that that's you know that's a cat, and then uh, not recognizing it's a cat just a minute later. You know, something like that. So that now the problem is is getting someone to assess that is not easy. Mm-hmm. Not easy, and you often want to go to an educator, teacher for the visually impaired. They may have a better chance of doing that than a physician. Mm-hmm. So it's something to be to be aware of, or, or you know. But I'm, I may be doing a disservice to optometrists and ophthalmologists who understand this better than I do. So always mention it, you know, if you mm-hmm. if you if you notice those patterns. A high refractive error is children either not being able to see stuff in the distance, that means they're nearsighted, or having hyperopia, which means that they can't see stuff for near. And if they're under accommodating, you'll see the eyes uh, turn in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the stigmas. Most children with Down syndrome and adults with Down syndrome get the stigmas from birth. That is six weeks after birth, that you, that's when it develops. And they don't, their vision may be reduced slightly because of it, but uh, what the parents are seeing is the eyes wobbling. And again, if they wobble, then they need to be seen. Mm -hmm. Um, Older children, especially teenagers, who are having difficulty 
recognizing things close up or having difficulty reading. You know, I've heard teachers send me patients who say, you know, this Down syndrome patient is functioning at a fairly high level, but we have issues with uh, reading, which don't make any sense. And you find that they're under-accommodating, under-focusing. Mm-hmm. You give them reading glasses and you see this amazing uh, uplift in their reading performance. Mm. So I think all of those things, if a child, I, I, I get, I, I get, I have some parents that burst into tears because when you give them glasses for near, the child can do things. Until then, parents had been told that the child was clumsy. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're not clumsy. They just can't see from here. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you need to be able to assess the accommodation. It's called a dynamic retinoscopy is what you need to do. And these are things that should be done. And they, they're done before you put drops into a child's eyes or an adult's eyes. Mm-hmm. So is this what an optometrist or an ophthalmologist would say to a lay person as taking the measurements? Is that what yes. it is? Yeah, but but I would say to you that taking the measurements are often done in children with Down syndrome after you've put dilating drops in them. You need yeah. to take this measurement before you put the dilating drop to, to assess their accommodation. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, this is important. This is really important to me. Yeah. And so there's a, a few things that I kind of want to unpack here. So you were talking about refractive error. So like, let's start talking about like, what are some of these vision issues? Because we do see a lot of our students with glasses. It's like a very common thing. So of the, of the list of things that you talked about, what, which of those are an indication that they need glasses? Um, if that makes sense. So sometimes if a child has a refractive error early from age, you cannot pick up from their behavior that they need glasses, hence the need for regular screening. In fact, I think the guidelines are that they're supposed to be screened at six months and annually till five years, then every two years until they're 13, and then every three years thereafter for the rest of their life, unless they have a problem, in which case it should be done sooner. So (laughs) the refractive error can be missed because the child copes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes to, to parents wonder how in the world would somebody assess my kid's eyes? They don't talk. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you go for an eye test and they say A or B, A or B, A or B, and they're doing all yeah. of that. And so they don't take their children because they're like, well, how would that even work? What does that look like? So um, I'm glad you asked that question. In children and in adults, you put a drop in their eye that paralyzes their focusing. Once that's done, you use an instrument called a retinoscope, which has uh, that projects a streak of light, like like a like a uh, what's it, a pen light, mm-hmm. but it's in a streak. When you shine that in a dilated eye, the light goes through the cornea, through the pupil, through the lens, and it hits the retina and then bounces back. If you are moving the streak, uh, sort of vertical, right, back and forth, left to right, you see the uh, reflection either moving in the same direction or moving in the opposite direction to your movement of your streak. If it's in the opposite direction, it means that the child is nearsighted and you take minus lenses, put them in front of the eye, 
until the reflection no longer moves in either direction. Hmm. And at that point, you take away the distance at which you are working, normally two-thirds of a meter, so you take one and a half units off, and that tells you the power of the eye for the glasses. Okay, well, this is the coolest thing I've heard all day. I know. This is excellent. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's how it works. Great. Uh, and then, so that so, means that the child doesn't necessarily need to cooperate beyond being able to be in a chair. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. some children won't open their eyes, and that can be a problem. But but here's yeah. what I say. I, I always say to parents with Down syndrome, if after the second visit I still haven't been able to get anywhere because they're not coping, I, I, I will have had an idea of whether they got a refractive error or not. And I say mm-hmm. to them, look, the child's going to be put to sleep for anything like teeth or anything else. I'd like to get involved and, and do an eye exam. And if they're not, yeah. I think a short eye exam under anesthesia you know, it, it, but the people who know how to put children with Down syndrome to sleep uh, is so worth making sure yeah. that they get the full visual potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. Um, Dr. Nichol, you had alluded to a couple of other um, common conditions. Can you just uh, talk a little bit about strabismus first yes. and what that is? Yeah. So a lot of strabismus seen in Down syndrome is accommodative. That means it's related to the fact that they can't focus or that they're over-focusing. Mm-hmm. And when you give them the appropriate glasses, sometimes they need to have bifocals. That means those are the bifocals you see elderly patients wearing. Mm-hmm. You've got a script for the distance, and then you've got an additional script in the lower half of the lens. The eyes will often just go straight mm-hmm. because you're now taking away the impetus. However... There's also a significant minority that even with the glasses, there's still a remaining residual esotropia. Now, that's when the eyes turn in, esotropia. If the child's vision is equal in both eyes and over a, a period of, let's say, three visits or two visits, that deviation remains stable and the glasses power doesn't change, then you may have to operate on them mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. straighten the eyes. And you're doing that to afford them the opportunity, not the absolute um, realization, but the opportunity of using the two eyes together. And I say mm-hmm. that because sometimes the way the processing of information is affected in children with Down syndrome, they do not have the ability to fuse two images. Right now, I'm seeing one of you because in this on the screen because my brain can fuse the two images, the one from each eye, into one. And if you can't do that, then you get double vision. And the brain sometimes will induce a strabismus so that it can ignore the other image. In other words, if you've got yes. eyes that are straight but you can't fuse, you're forever seeing shadowy objects or two yeah. images. And that's difficult. So the brain says, I'm push, pushing this eye back to where it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I then ignore that other image and concentrate on what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's essentially like a misalignment of the eye, right? Yes, sorry, yes, was, yeah. a misalignment yeah. of the eye. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then the other one I wanted to talk, d- dig it a little bit into is amblyopia or lazy eye, because yeah. um, I, ha- I have a, a few of my clients that have severe amblyopia. So, can you talk a little bit about what it is and how it would affect 
their you know, yeah. an activity that so, they would be doing. So you remember that we talked about getting an abnormal visual uh, experience during the first eight years of life, and that caused a, a, a drop in vision, and that's what amblyopia is. Mm-hmm. So when you see amblyopia, you have to try and treat it when it's in one eye by patching the good eye. Mm-hmm. And they don't like to be patched. Most children nope. don't. Down syndrome <laughs> children just want to rip that patch off. So you have to use drops, atropine eye drops, 1%, um, can be used to blur the good image and make the brain use the, the eye with the poorer image in the refractive error. I would just want to make clear to people who are listening who might be horrified by this, it's a, this is a not forever. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, we're not no, doing no, it forever. No, 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 yeah. You're doing yeah. it during the plasticity stage, right? And the closer you get to eight, the more likely you are, if the vision's improved, of tailing mm-hmm. it off and, 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 and stopping that. Mm-hmm. But there is no other treatment at the moment. Now, there are some newer treatments that have come along called dicoptic stimulation, but those gadgets are expensive. And while the initial studies show some promise, uh, patching is still the way to go at the moment. Mm-hmm. Is that deep brain stimulation? No, no, no. It's it's a way that basically they put glasses on and they see two images. One image has a, a, a filter in front of it over the good eye so they can still see through it, but the contrast is reduced. Oh. And so they prefer to see with the eye that's got the better contrast, which is the eye of the amphibia. Interesting. That's an interesting development. And I think that even our our students that are not very, you know, amenable to wearing a patch, some don't even like the drops, you know, so it, it's a tricky thing, but there are ways that we can get them used to wearing a patch, you know, so there are behavioral interventions and, you know, your local occupational therapist could probably help, you know, in helping them desensitize these mm-hmm. things, because in my, in the case of my client, it's made a massive difference. And all of a sudden, I, I was just going to say, um, Dr. Michelle, what are some of the, because um, I think there's certain signs that may indicate amblyopia, like in terms of like maybe looking out the corner of your eye. Are there a few externalizing so, things that we could look for? Yeah, so so um, there aren't any external signs of amblyopia, but there are signs of the causes of amblyopia. So strabismus, children turning their head to look out the corner is often astigmatism. I was, we didn't mention that. Mm. Astigmatism is when, the shape of the eye, instead of being like a soccer ball, is like an American football. And so the power in the two meridia of the eyeball are not the same. And what I mean by meridia is, you know, sort of uh, vertically and horizontally. Sometimes it can be oblique, but vertically and horizontally, the power should be the same. If it's not, it means that there is astigmatism. And children will sort of look out the corner of their eyes to do that. Children will develop head postures uh, if they have um, uh, nystagmus because they put the eyes in a position where there's no nystagmus. But in order to mm-hmm. do that, they have to turn the head or lift the head or depress the yeah. chin, etc. We see a lot of the eyes. The eyes and the nose are always misaligned. I have nystagmus, and I have to. My nose has to point one way. My eyes have to point another way in order for me to feel like centered. Otherwise yeah. it's, yeah. So I, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting experience for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. Bart. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about idiopathic intracranial hypertension and yes. I will translate that briefly for people who don't work in medicine. 
Um, in my mind, this is embarrassing to admit it because I translate these things often. And in this one in particular is why pressure in the head. And that's what right. I use to cue myself. Yeah, so that's, that's, a, good, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, so um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension is when, so in the, in the human brain, there is fluid called cerebrospinal fluid. It is in, um, there are, um, two lateral ventricles or cavities, <coughs> a third ventricle and a fourth ventricle. And the way I describe it is if those of you who have ever seen uh, Star Trek, uh, the USS Enterprise, if you think about the shape, the two things on the side are the lateral ventricles. The disc at the front is the third ventricle and the body at the bottom is the fourth ventricle. Perfect. That's exactly what they look like. Uh, that's so and, great. and and um, the purpose is to keep the uh, brain refreshed and nutrients getting to the brain and take away toxic substances. And this CSF, and, and that's a sort of very, you know, there's lots of other things the CSF does, but that's a good way of looking at it. Um, the CSF then also goes and bathes the whole of the spinal cord all the way down your back. Now, if you have um, something that blocks that flow, it builds up in those ventricles and the pressure goes up. Now, that is not idiopathic. There's a cause, there's a blockage, whether that's due to uh, stenosis or whether it's due to a tumor, there's a cause. In idiopathic, there is an overproduction of the fluid without any other sinister pathology. And we know that this condition occurs at a higher rate in patients who are overweight, females in the sort of uh, middle ages, but also in children who are overweight. And of course, in Down syndrome, that, that's not uncommon. And in also in Down syndrome, we know that they can get sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Uh, an obstructive sleep apnea can cause, uh, can be associated with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Mm -hmm. The way you, you pick it up is a behavioral change if they can't communicate with you or they tell you they've got headaches or they're throwing up with the headaches. You do, we have to do a scan to make sure there's nothing sinister. Um, and then when you look in the optic nerves, the optic nerves should look like um, um, lifesaver candies or polo mints. They're flat with a hole in the middle. It's not actually a hole, it's just a space where there's no nerve tissue. Well, instead of looking like that, they look like marshmallows because they're swollen. Mm -hmm. And you have to do something about this because if you leave that as it is, the child will lose vision slowly and will lose visual field slowly. Mm. And I think, I think the prevalence for people with Down syndrome is somewhere between three and 4%. So it's not yes. unheard of. Um, no. and I believe there's also a link between hypothyroid, hypothyroid treatment. So some of your synthroid and some of those. And yes, yes. And also, also uh, that can happen. And also if, if they're taking doxycycline for acne or uh, blepharitis it can happen with doxycycline. So yeah, there are, there are, known associations. I think the major behavioral piece in my understanding is headaches, which yes. in our student looks like banging your head probably on things, yes. um, the floor, mm -hmm. the walls, 
because how else do you communicate that it hurts a lot and it's a nice distraction if you have a headache. So if you suddenly start seeing that or see that as a parent, go, <laughs> go get seen. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Mitchell, we know that our individuals with Down syndrome age at an accelerated rate. So how is that impacting their vision? Are they having some of the vision issues a person in their 40s would have earlier in their 20s? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, so... It depends what else is going on. If they're myopic, in other words, they're nearsighted and their eyeballs are very big, they can get myopic degeneration of the macula, which is the central sink part of the eye, earlier than you would expect, but not normally in the 20s, maybe in 30s or 40s, because if this is going to happen, it normally happens in the 50s and 60s in the normal population. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think that that's probably the, 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 the commonest, commonest thing that you might see. Um, you don't tend to see, well, you can see cataracts by the time they're 30 or 40. They normally develop in, develop in, the, in the 50s or 60s in normal individuals. So there are there is that, but there isn't anything that I would say was sort of absolutely specific to Down syndrome. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... Do you expect when someone comes to see you that you will be able to get 50-50 vision from them? 50-50 or you mean 20-20? 20-20. I'm thinking, I've, I've heard of cases recently where they were told not to expect anything better than 20-50. That's yeah, no, I understand. I, I'm, I'm just, I just wanted to make sure I, I wasn't missing no, out on good. a new trendy thing, you know. Um, so the answer is I don't expect them to have 20-20. I expect them to have 20-40 at, at the minimum. Okay. If they don't have 2040, then I really go to town and figure out what I can do to, to get them better than 2040. Okay. Or at 2040. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, do you have any tips for parents who have upcoming appointments and maybe they're worried about their children's vision? Any ideas for them on how to approach I, I these think, kind of appointments? I think it's a good idea to role play to show them that you know we, we're going to cover up one eye to measure the vision this is how we're going to cover the eye up so it's not a big shock when a child gets in mm-hmm. uh-huh. so a bit of role playing explaining that they might need drops and what the drops feel like and what what, we, what they're going to do and how they're going to help the child that sort of stuff mm-hmm. practicing in yeah. advance is always and good. maybe even just having a conversation i know a lot of parents are just worried like will the ophthalmologist or optometrist know how to interact with my child because I've heard yeah, stories no, of parents. Are I mean, yeah, so, yeah. Those are all valid concerns. But I think I think if the parents know that the child something that the child doesn't like, you know, if the child doesn't like sitting on their own on a on a chair, then they should tell that to the physician, you know, my child won't do well if you do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any resources that you'd like to share? Anything that you give to parents or websites or anything that you'd recommend? So, you know, what I, te- what I have found is that most parents, by the time they come to me, have their own resources and their own websites that they like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any preference. Uh, I ask, I find that parents often have developed, uh, have joined Facebook groups and mm-hmm. um, the like, uh, parent support groups. And they often have more knowledge than I do about, you know, what's going on and what's available. So 
So I, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. I think so. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, we'll put the health guidelines and some of those kind of things yes, parents please, can use yeah. for advocacy yeah. purposes. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we might have to make a vocabulary page for this episode. You know? Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have to make one. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There, and there's some great, like the National Down Syndrome Society's website does a good job of outlining some of the, the, the vision issues that they give. A, they do a good job of parent friendly language explaining some of these things so we can put some links to, to those kind of things as well. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, so there's one resource that's going to be available very soon on March the 20th in recognition of uh, World Down Syndrome Day. Um, the World Society of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus is doing a webinar about the ocular features that affect Down syndrome. And that will be available to anybody on the WSPOS YouTube channel. Um, And uh, in fact, two weekends ago, it's available there if you go now, there was a, um, a webinar about strabismus surgery in developmentally delayed children and adults, and there was a whole section on uh, children with Down syndrome, and, you know, what to look out for and what to do. Fantastic. Great. We'll put those on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We hugely appreciate your time today. It's been very illuminating. Um, I enjoyed <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Learned a lot. I think for a minute there, uh, Marla, you were trying to imitate my English accent. Uh, I have an English husband. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm hopeless. Hopeless. Hey, yeah. You have an English husband, eh? Yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you so much, Dr. Nichol. We appreciate it. We learned a lot. I know that our listeners will learn a lot and kind of get them a little bit more empowered and informed. So we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been an honor and a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review. Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org slash podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from The Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. Want to know more about Down syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. Users have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. Start with our free introductory course Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with Down Syndrome. Each course guides users through video, audio, and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with Down Syndrome. All courses and subscriptions include access to the DSRF Circle of Support 
Through this social community, users can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with CSRF. So, what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin, and there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash thinkific to sign up today. Got questions? We have answers! 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome, direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down syndrome and their families at every stage of life. From mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more, we will equip you to explore whatever your future hopes. 321 Magazine, information and inspiration for Canada's Down syndrome community. Download the latest issue and describe for free at dsrf.org slash magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome Podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join the conversation at DSRF Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Lowdown is hosted by... Marla Fordan and Hannah Mahmood and it's produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lowdown theme music and George Do was written and recorded by Rick Scott.